You guys, welcome to episode 110 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives in the well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. It is me, Troy Mahahi. How's it going? You know, it's always good to hear from you, to see you. It has been about a month since we did an episode, just me and you. Just a couple of gals in the kitchen, chain smoking and drinking. You know what I mean? Just us. Um, <clears throat> and I'm excited. You know, I, I really, really look forward to these solo dolo episodes. And I'm really, really excited to do this one. Uh, we didn't have an episode last week. And then the last couple episodes prior to that have been episodes with guests. Um, so it's, you know, this is necessary. I, I really look forward to these episodes where we just like hang out and talk. You know what I mean? <clears throat> Apparently my voice is going to be a problem today. Um, I also wanted to apologize for not uh, releasing an episode last week. I realized kind of halfway through this whole process that I needed to split this up into parts in a way that I've never done before because there's so much information to go over. Um, so as you know, from the description, I am doing a Britney and Justin episode today. Uh, it's really surprising, to be honest with you, that I haven't done a Britney and Justin episode. Um, a lot of you message me and say, like, when are we getting the Britney and Justin episode? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I've talked about Britney and Justin sort of passively in other episodes, but never like a definitive telling of their relationship. And I guess, you know, I've, I've told you this before, and this is like truly genuine. I'm not even trying to be funny. Like, I, I don't know how to gauge when I'm talking about Britney too much, as you know. Like, you know me well enough now after 110 weeks spent with me that I, 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 I don't. Like, I could talk about her for hours and hours and hours, and I alienate people. <laughs> and I learned, I had to learn that the hard way in, uh, in high school. You know what I mean? So, uh, I'm always like, you know, maybe I've like talked about her too much. People are over it, but there's so much happening right now in the news with Brittany. And there's so much that I want to address because if I'm being honest with you, not to toot my own horn, but like truly, you know, toot toot. A lot of the things that are coming out right now in the news are things that you and I have spoken about for over a year. Um, the first Brittany episode, Brittany episode I did was Brittany and Columbus short. I did that like early last year and we talked about so much of this stuff we did a three-part britney and kevin special where i broke down her whole entire uh 2007 period and like what happened and why it happened and why i believe it happened and we've talked so much about britney's current state um so a lot of the stuff that's coming out i'm just like where have you been you know what i mean it's weird it's a weird thing seeing people who have sort of passive Britney knowledge that don't really know a lot about her that maybe haven't been like completely locked in for the past 10 years as to what's been going on. Um, now all of a sudden everybody has an opinion and everybody has a theory and these conspiracy theories that people used to make me and other Britney fans think were crazy are now just sort of mainstream news. Um, so it's, it's pretty wild and I wanted to give my take on it and you know, I also, I'm going to be breaking this episode down in a way that I've never done before. Last night, I watched the boy band Khan documentary on YouTube about Lou Pearlman. And I was like, you know, 
I could fit this into like 10 minutes of an episode, or I could just give it what it deserves. So I'm pretty sure this episode's going to have three parts. I'm pretty sure we may not even really get to Brittany today. I think that I'm going to save that for next week, the introduction of Brittany. Believe it or not, we're actually going to be talking about Justin Timberlake for like an hour today. And I'm not going to spend the whole time bashing him. I'm going to be above it. I have a job to do. I signed up for this. Occasionally, I have to speak about people that I don't care for. And I'm going to do that today. I'm going to do it um, at least for now, because we're talking about young Justin, I'm going to do that respectfully, and I'm going to give that noodlehead fucker what he deserves, which is an hour, because he is a very prominent figure in pop culture, right? Um, so, you know, join me on this journey. Uh, hopefully this works out. This is very experimental for me. I've never really done this before, but we'll see how it goes. I'm also, by the way, I'm low energy. I'm low energy, as you can probably tell. I'm just not feeling myself. The past, like, I'll be completely honest with you. Let's get transparent before we, like, really get into it. The past, like, I would say a couple months, few months, maybe three, I've been feeling, like, pretty... I've been feeling some pretty clinical depression. Like, some pretty, like, just, like, clinical, like, television commercial depression. Where I'm like, wow, like... That's me. But in the past month, I'd say that it's gotten, like, pretty bad. And I'm just not feeling myself. Like, I'm feeling very down and out. And I'm just, like, in the dumps. I'm going to be honest with you. I'll be real. So, if you can hear that in my voice, uh, I'm sorry. I hope it doesn't affect the episode. Um, I'm talking about Britney Spears, so, like, I doubt she won't be able to cheer me up because she's always done that for me my entire life. But I'm, uh... Either way, I'm excited to get into this, and it's just, I can't believe that we're doing an episode about Justin Timberlake today and, like, barely mentioning Britney, but you'll understand when we get into it. I just, I really want to get into the Lou Perlman of it all and the sort of formation of NSYNC and the effect that this fat fucker had on 90s pop music, this fucking pedophile Svengali motherfucker, you know? It's way too much information to just, let's just get into it. I'm going to shut the fuck up and start rambling. Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake dated from June of 1999 to spring of 2002. Do you believe it was only like a few years that they dated and they had that big of an impact? We're still talking about this couple like on a weekly basis. Um, Britney and Justin very famously met as kids during their time on the Disney Channel. And uh, as we know, there was tons of speculation surrounding their relationship in the beginning. You know, if they were or weren't together, and they confirmed their relationship in the year 2000. Um, this relationship obviously catapulted them into like this completely un untapped stratosphere of fame. Some something that I don't really think any other pop star had ever seen. Um, not to this magnitude. They were both so famous. Um, and I don't think that either of them are ready for it, but obviously Justin handled it much better. Um, and obviously tons of media speculation and cheating rumors and public obsession uh, with their relationship led to one of the most prolific breakups in pop culture history. One that has not only affected an entire generation of people, but it's one that sort of set the tone for other pop stars after them. You know what I mean? Like, how Britney and Justin handled this breakup in the press is sort of a blueprint for what not to do for other pop stars. And we'll never see anything like this again, like this sort of 
naive messiness that you could only have in the early 2000s. Um, and I talk all the time about how weirdly inappropriate the media was, you know, just a few years ago and, you know, still is for the most part, but just in this more like sort of fake, you know, politically correct way, more self-aware, I guess you could say. And um, specifically during this early 2000s period, they didn't really have like a single fuck to offer you. The media did not care. There was no illusion of respecting these people really as human beings. And if you were a girl, obviously, you know, forget about it. Um, Brittany and Justin were expected to divulge information about the relationship that would be considered totally inappropriate today. You know, them having to explain in interviews how far they had gone sexually was like a pretty normal thing. Um, I mean, it's like unimaginable to picture like Sean Mendez and like Camila Cabello, you know, explaining what base they had gotten to sexually and then being ridiculed because they won't divulge it. First of all, LOL at them even being an actual couple. If you guys believe that Camila Cabello and Sean Mendez is a real couple, then you need to turn this off or you need to go back and listen to all the episodes and really piece together, you know, really get into like the beautiful mind of it all. Your the beautiful mind fantasy. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. As you guys know, Justin Timberlake, formerly known as Justin Randall, is a Southern boy. He's Southern-raised, Memphis, Tennessee, a good Christian Baptist boy. Uh, his parents divorced when he was really young, so he spent his time divided between both of his parents. Uh, his dad was a church choir director and is the one responsible for Justin's music ability. He taught him how to sing. He introduced him to you know, all these 60s and 70s R&B musicians that he would later make a career out of emulating. <laughs> uh, his mom, now, I said that I would be respectful, but I'm not going to not throw shade. Like, don't act like, I'm, I'm going to be me. Um, his mom, however, was sort of like a classic Southern pageant mom, like in, the, in, the tr- in its truest form. And when Justin was in third grade, he and his friends formed a little mini New Kids on the Block and performed for a school talent show. Uh, his mom, you know, she looked to her left, she looked to her right, she realized she was surrounded by screaming girls for her son that nobody knew, this, like, little boy. And the Southern stage mom took over, and she heard the whispers in her ear telling her to record it. Record him. <laughs> record him. Pull out your camera. Put your camera on your shoulders and record him. Um she reached out to her former piano teacher and made him watch the tape and you know she wanted to get a second opinion should we pursue some sort of career with this kid do you think that he is he is the ability to be a singer and it was pretty obvious i mean like Justin Timberlake has always had a very natural ability to kiss it smoochie on stage um i've seen the tapes he's giving you everything he's giving you everything that you could possibly desire he's giving you the hip thrust that you expect, he's giving you hat tilts, dimples, winks, and everything in between. He leaves nothing to be desired. You want you want a finger gun shooting up to the sky, then you've got it. You know what I mean? You want a suspenders pull and a heel turn, consider it done. You know what I mean? He was that kid. He was so pageant ready. Um, obviously just loved attention so much and was so meant to be on stage. This inevitably inevitably led to what I lovingly, and this is with love, this is not with hate, referred to as his pageantry era, 
which I've spoken about on this podcast before last year. Justin became a very Southern, Western wear-inspired pageant boy. Um, He would come out on stage, as I've said before, in these sort of high-waisted Wranglers pulled up to his throat and, you know, a belt buckle wider than his waist, a denim embroidered top, some cowboy boots, a big old cowboy hat, you know what I mean, to let you know that this is his rodeo. And, um... Yeah, and that this is his ranch and that he owns it and that you're you're trespassing. <laughs> you know what I mean? He won several local competitions, <laughs> sorry, uh, which led to him auditioning for Star Search in 1992. And something that I want you youngins to understand is that Star Search during this time in the in the 80s and 90s was the only show that really catered to children's talent. Like it was the only really public outlet that kids had where they could go on and audition and have the whole world see them. This was before American Idol. This was before X Factor. You know, this was before uh, America's Got Talent. You know, a, a kid going on stage and juggling was not happening on TV. So this was it. And that's why you see so many famous people in their 30s that have appeared on Star Search because this was the only outlet that that they had. Um While Justin and his mom were in Orlando auditioning for the show, a fellow stage mom told Lynn, Lynn Randall, um, about another audition that was happening, uh, like a couple buildings down for the new Mickey Mouse Club. Apparently it was taping the next building over and they were on a national, (laughs) a national, (laughs) a national wide search for young talent, um, Justin auditioned and joined the cast in 1992, along with Christina Aguilera, Carrie Russell, uh, Ryan Gosling, J.C. Chazé, and Brittany Jean. Uh, the kids performed five days a week for 14 hours a day. And it's very ironic and sort of cosmic that these two found each other, honestly, that they were brought into each other's lives. You have these two Southern Baptist kids from different parts of the country who were kind of poor and under the impression more so for Brittany, but Justin as well on a, on a, on a more sort of calm scale, they were under the impression that their families would be able to sort of make ends meet and put food on the table if they worked really hard enough, you know, and they were like 11. They almost, it's almost like they were trauma bonding. Like it's a very like, Caitlin and Tyler situation when I look at Brittany and Justin. Shout out to Liz Bentley. But you know what I mean? It's trauma bonding. It's like we're both poor and our parents need us to help pay the mortgage. So we better go out there and kill it tonight. The piano teacher that I mentioned earlier told this story in an interview that I watched on YouTube where apparently Brittany came to him uh, very similar to how Justin and his mom approached him with a tape. Uh, it was a compilation of all her performances on the Mickey Mouse Club so far. And she wanted him to basically just like, critique her and tell her all the stuff that she needs to work on, what she's doing well, blah, blah, blah. And he said that she was sitting in a swivel chair while he was watching the tape and making these like silly faces in the mirror. And uh, he mentioned that Justin had done the same thing and that he was able to you know really help him a great deal and make him a much better performer. And as soon as he said that, she, like, immediately basically stopped making silly faces in the mirror, like, very slowly turned around with her eyes bulging out of her head and said, you know him? 
And uh, he said, you know, everybody on set knew that Britney had this massive crush on Justin, that she was infatuated with him. And a lot of the time when she was performing and like giving it her all, she really was just trying to impress him. You know, she had basically been in love with him truly since she was a little girl. Um, And even though they weren't technically dating because they were like 11, Britney did share later that Justin was her first kiss and that it happened uh, on the set of the Mickey Mouse Club. And I read this really interesting article on um, Shondaland.com, Shonda Rhimes's like blog, uh, about how Britney and Christina were positioned to sort of fill the space of these two former Mickey Mouse Club stars, um, which is, they're pretty iconic. I mean, Annette Funicello and Doreen Tracy. And this was intentional. They were cast as the sort of predecessors to these very iconic women. Um, In the blog, she wrote, Annette and Doreen were respectively the Britney and Christina of their time. Annette was a sweet, soft voice, polite, charming, beautiful, and innocent screen presence. Then, as she matured, her new curves made her even more popular. Boys would joke for decades to come about for decades to come that her appearance jolted them right into puberty. Doreen, however, was pretty cute too. Certain boys liked her better because it made them a little different from their friends and gave them the feeling that they could actually uh, have her to themselves. When the All-American, or the All-American, when the all-new Mickey Mouse, like, where did that even come from? When the all-new Mickey Mouse Club relaunched decades later, the spirits of Annette and Doreen were revived in the form of Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. At the time of the show, the young singers were friendly with each other, but were very different as performers. Britney was an extremely hard-working cheerleader type and a, with a sweet personality um, and an adequate voice and uh, a very clear dance talent. Christina was a tiny girl with an astonishing vocal range. Uh, She was so good that future pop star Jessica Simpson, waiting to audition after her, famously choked on her performance and didn't make the show. So they go on to talk about how Annette and Doreen sort of helped create like the female trope of like, are you going to be a good girl or a bad girl? You know, that all female pop stars are faced with at some point if they're famous for long enough to have the world sort of watch them go through puberty. And Annette went on to become sort of like the queen of the 60s beach movie. And she maintained a very like sweet but sexy edge with the help of um, iconic creep Walt Disney. Yeah, I said it. Uh, And Doreen, on the other hand, had a much more interesting sort of bad girl career. She toured Vietnam during the war um, with a rock band and she posed nude for several men's magazines um, and one of them, she actually wore nothing but Mickey ears, which apparently Walt was very upset about because, um, you know, he's a very conservative, uh, clean cut man. <laughs> so he was he was very upset to see a naked girl wearing Mickey ears in a magazine. Um, the article also said in their post Mickey Mouse Club careers, Britney's image was that of a, li- a literal virgin professing publicly that she was saving herself. Even as, her, even as her on-screen image in music videos, starting with her iconic schoolgirl outfit and Baby One More Time, um, flirted with a sexier side. Meanwhile, and this is really interesting to me, uh, Christina Aguilera overtly embraced a more sexual edge, starting with her first single, Genie in a Bottle, quoting, You've got to rub me the right way. The dichotomy led quickly to a rivalry narrative as the media consistently pitted these two against each other with little evidence that they were actually in conflict at all, except, of course, when badgered by badgered by questions 
badgered with questions by reporters about each other. This played into another classic female trope, the cat fight. In fact, it was the it was mostly the media giving into the temptation uh, to compare these two. Christina Aguilera may f- now this is my favorite thing. Christina Aguilera may flash skin and belly button, but in her music and manner, she's too eager not to offend. Christina is a good girl pretending to be bad. David Brown wrote in a in a 2000 article for Entertainment Weekly. Spears, on the other hand, comes across as a bad girl having to pretend to be good. And I don't know why I just thought that was so interesting. I love that because that's so true. Christina Aguilera has always been, in my opinion, Christina Aguilera has always been the girl fighting tooth and nail to be seen, to be heard, to be taken seriously, uh, you know, to have the recognition that people around her get that she doesn't feel they deserve and she'll do whatever it takes. So if that means sort of like stepping out of her comfort zone and pretending to be this like bad girl, she'll do it. Whereas Britney is somebody who was so like, you know, just so blatantly not that good girl that she had to pretend to be, you know, obviously a sweet girl raised well, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know what I'm trying to say? (laughs) Um, I just thought that was super interesting. It gives you some, and it also gives you some insight as to like how quickly the industry can embed itself into the mind of a, a very naive young person who just wants to please the adults around them, you know, that they assume know better and have their best interests. Um, Dustin and Brittany performed in the Mickey Mouse Club together for two years, and the show was then canceled because the network had decided it was too expensive to produce. Uh, The cast was told after the season wrap party that they would be back for Christmas, which didn't happen. So then months go by, they're at the end of January, and they get a call that they're not going to be returning and that the show is being canceled. So Brittany went back home to Kentwood and Justin went back to Tennessee um, and they didn't speak for a long time. It was several years that they didn't see each other. And it was at this point that their families were sort of scrambling to figure out like what was going to be next. You know, the Mickey Mouse Club was supposed to be this thing that, you know, got their family to move out to New York or LA and, got them management and a record deal and a team and money, you know? Um, they went back to school and lived normal lives. And I mentioned, I'm going to be focusing primarily on Justin today because I I want to talk about the boy band con documentary. But I really want to talk, especially given what's happening in the news right now, I really want to talk next week about Britney and her family during this time and her dad. Um, I guess the general public has just found out that Britney's dad was abusive. I, I guess that that's something that everybody has just come to some sort of conclusion about, but Britney was raised in a, in a much more abusive home than I think many people understand. And she was definitely much more poor than I think people know. I don't think people understand that Britney's dad was, they were so poor that her dad was like hunting possum and shit for them to eat for dinner. Like they were like, po- like poverty stricken poor. They were poor. So next week I want to get into that. I want to talk about this sort of like Kentwood era of Britney's life. Um, and after this particular point, Justin had heard that JC Chazay 
and a couple other guys from the Mickey Mouse Club were traveling back and forth to Nashville to record these demos that they were going to like try and get out to record labels. Um, there was also talks of possibly starting a band. Uh, Chris Kirkpatrick, who was singing in a doo-wop choir at Universal Studios, had seen JC and Justin on the Mickey Mouse Club and one of them for the group. Um, he basically was trying to create a band that was like the Backstreet Boys with elevated vocal ability. Uh, Chris had actually auditioned for the Backstreet Boys but didn't make it. And, you know, this was their thing at the beginning. It didn't, it turned into something much different, and which we'll talk about. But, like, at the beginning, they were hyper focused on, like, being a doo wop band. Like, that was, like, all they cared about. Um, they just so happened to be marketable as, like, a teen boy band, but they really only cared about, like, their voices and, like, harmonizing and crooning and fucking doo wopping or whatever. But Chris Kirkpatrick took doo wop very serious. <laughs> Don't, <laughs> Don't ever come for Chris Kirkpatrick when it comes to doo wop because he'll read you for filth. Um, and this is interesting to me, especially, like, looking back on all the other boy bands at this time, like, when you look at NSYNC, they were such an unconventional boy band, to put it lightly. Um, Chris Kirkpatrick looked like, <laughs> he looked like a guy that worked at Spencer's and like wouldn't make eye contact with you while you check out, let's be real. Joy Fatone looked like your hot friend's like older brother who like isn't hot, but like kind of favors him. Lance Bass looked like a granola lesbian with a Subaru. Uh, you know, it makes sense that JC and Justin were pushed to the front of the band because they were the most sort of conventionally attractive, um, you know, in the the sense of, like, boy band looks, you know? Um, but unlike most boy bands, none of them were really chosen to be a part of the group because of how they looked really i mean when it came down to it um it was they really really focused on singing which sounds silly but it's like you know with a boy band it's like the whole thing is that people want to have to little girls want to have to lose their virginity to them like that's the whole point so the fact that you had chris kirkpatrick and joey fatone in this band is like nothing we had ever seen and we'll never see anything like it you'll never see another man who looks like joey fatone Somebody that would, like, show up at your apartment that was, like, hired by your landlord to fix plumbing in a boy band. Ever. Um, and during rehearsals, Justin Timberlake's mom made a comment about how, you know, the band felt very in sync and they were all so, you know, connected and that's how they got their their name. Um, they ended up moving into a house together, which became known as the NSYNC house. And it was all the guys and, and Justin's mom, like, living together. They had no money. They had a minivan that they were traveling all over the place with. And they basically spent the next few months, like, obsessively rehearsing and trying to figure out how to, to make this work and, like, what role each of them would play in this band. Um, now, we're about to start talking about Lou Perlman, obviously, and I just... I want to make sure that your wig is clipped down. You know how I am about that. I want to make sure that you don't end up bald. So really, I'll give you a couple seconds to push the clips into your scalp and really clip them into your hair because, like, girl, 
Like, do whatever you feel like you need to do. Sit down, grab a snack, grab a beer, grab a drink, whatever. Like, this is like a, we are, we are getting into it. Like, the Lou Pearlman of it all. Are you ready for this? Now, from what I've read, it was Justin Timberlake who initially reached out to Lou Pearlman and asked him to come watch them perform. Um, they obviously were hoping that he would like them enough to, you know, want to sign them or whatever. And at this particular point, like, nobody knows who NSYNC is. The only people who have seen them perform are their parents and, like, the local drunks at whatever bar they go to and perform it, you know, during the middle of the day. Um, and also just, like, teenage girls who just so happen to be, like, walking around the mall while they're, like, performing in front of Sears. You know what I mean? This is a really big deal for them that Lou Perlman is coming to watch them perform. And at this particular time, I don't think Lance was a part of the group uh, because it was Justin and Lou that had actually reached out to him together and asked him to come sing the Star Spangled Banner for the rest of the guys, uh, with the rest of the guys, I'm sorry. Um, and in the Boy Band Con doc, he talked about how, you know, Lou sent a Rolls Royce to pick him up from his house. And, you know, obviously his parents were freaking out, like, oh my God, our son is getting in a Rolls Royce to go to a mansion with, like, a giant, you know, music producer to sing in a boy band, possibly. Like, this is crazy. You know, really giving this teenage boy, like, the red carpet treatment and, like, grooming him from day one, you know? Now, I wanted to give you guys a quick rundown of Lou Pearlman and, like, who he is, because not all of you have seen the boy band documentary, and I've been studying this fat fucker since, like, for a long time. I've been obsessed with Lou Pearlman for a very long time. I've always I've been wondering for years, like, when the shoe would drop on him. And obviously, there were whispers about Lou for a very long time. But even now, with people knowing what kind of monster Lou Pearlman was, he still doesn't really get talked about as often as you would think. This is a man who is, and I'm going to just go out on a limb and say single-handedly, responsible for... The, the pop explosion of the 90s. Lou Pearlman single-handedly created a decade's worth of music, this monster. Um, Lou Pearlman grew up in New York. He's the first cousin of Art Garfunkel, which is like a really... It's, it's a it's a really funny part of the documentary if you've seen it um and he was described as sort of a nerdy kid who didn't have a ton of friends he was a pathological liar everybody knew him you know growing up to be the kid that just sort of made up stories and would and fabricate things and say whatever he needed to say to have friends um He's, he was always the kid that was left out of things. He wasn't like many other people. There's a guy in the documentary that he grew up with in his neighborhood that said, you know, this was a very political time. Like, everybody was really politically charged. And everybody in the neighborhood sort of looked the same. He grew up in Flushing, Queens. And then you had Lou Pearlman, who looked like, uh, I don't know, Uder from The Simpsons. Like, if, you, if you're a Simpsons fan... And you've seen this documentary, you've seen pictures of uh, Lou Pearlman as a kid. He legitimately did look like Uder. Like, he was roly-poly, he was blonde, he had a big belly, he wore his pants way up above his, his belly button on his chest. Um, he would wear suspenders. He he actually literally was Uder. Um, and he originally had a career in aviation. That was sort of his whole thing. That was how he made his money, that was how he was able to fund these bands. 
Uh, he was obsessed with planes and blimps. He basically scammed his way into starting an airline charter company where he falsely claimed to be endorsed by all these different brands that he wasn't endorsed by. There were several, <laughs> there were several lawsuits involving the company before he even got into the music industry. Uh, he signed a deal with Jordash jeans where he would fly like a Jordash blimp above this Jordash party. Um, he lied and told the brand that he would fly this luxury blimp over the party. And he ended up buying this like several year old, really beat to death blimp for $10,000 and got it covered with a Jordash label. Um, and he insured it for $3 million specifically so that he could crash it and collect the money. He started leasing out planes to celebrities. Uh, one of the groups he leased to was New Kids on the Block. And he was confused as to how a group of teenage boys could afford to lease their own plane. Like, at this particular point, the, the idea of a boy band is so, you know, it's such a new thing, right? And how much money these people make is also sort of a, it's a new thing. This is like a new era of music. And it's unimaginable that a group of like, you know, 18 year old kids can rent and charter a plane. Um, and Lou was at that point pretty content with his life until he realized how much money he could be making in the music industry. So Lou studied the new kids on the block and he studied their management and, you know, the formula and, you know, what about them was making money and et cetera. And he sort of tried his hand at reformatting the sort of boy band business model. The Backstreet Boys was the first group that he put together and became the most successful boy band of all time. They still technically are. And he was also responsible for LFO. He uh, introduced the world to Aaron Carter, um, Jordan Knight as a solo artist, O-Town, um, an all-female band called Innocence that Britney Spears was a part of for a very short time. And... You know, some other lesser known groups that never really took off, but like the teen pop explosion was directly because of Lou. Like other people were involved, other people were hired, but the idea and the success of it was because of Lou Pearlman. Um, Lou ended up moving in sync into a house together and they rehearsed in his unair conditioned airplane hangars. Um, this is where they learned how to harmonize and how to dance and how to not lose their breath while they're performing. Um, you know, none of them had dads, really. So Lou became this sort of like pseudo father figure in the group. And they all he told them to call him Big Papa. Um, Lance described him in the documentary as sort of the head of their family, you know, their little unconventional family that they had created. And during the time that the Backstreet Boys had taken off and become globally famous, NSYNC was the sort of redheaded stepchild of Lou's label. You know, he didn't want the Backstreet Boys knowing that they existed, so they had to schedule their time with him around the Backstreet Boys so that, you know, they wouldn't be around and catch wind that there was another boy band in the group or in, you know, in the mix. Um, and on the expense reports, he was referring to them as B5 because he didn't want any of the other guys knowing that they existed. 
Um, and one of the things that I've always loved about, I don't know, I was an NSYNC head. Like, I liked the Backstreet Boys growing up. Like, if we're going to get into this, I listened to the Backstreet Boys albums, of course, as we all did, right? Like, all of us, we all listened to all of the music, but the way that Lou Pearlman um, marketed these boy bands and these pop stars was that, like, you couldn't like all of them. You had to like one. And this was all Lou Pearlman's doing. Like, this was never a thing before that. And now it's kind of, like, died out, and kids don't really like that anymore. But at this time, during the height of, like, the pop explosion, you had to, like, one specific kind of... You had to, like, one specific band or one specific artist, and that was it. And you could silently, you know, in the in the privacy of your own home, listen to all the rest of them, but you couldn't be public about it. You had to go out and really spend all of your parents' money on this specific band or artist, right? So I was an NSYNC head. I loved the Backstreet Boys. I actually, I, I loved their music. Like, I would listen to their albums all the time, but, like, publicly, I was an NSYNC fan. And one of the things that I always loved about NSYNC in comparison to the Backstreet Boys and the reason that I think I chose them when I was younger was that they were sort of like the brighter and louder and tackier and more unapologetic about being a boy band, boy band. The Backstreet Boys were marketed as very serious. They were like dark. They were brooding. They wore black all the time and they wore leather and like really dark sunglasses and like big oversized like gray and black sick silk blouses. Um, whereas like NSYNC was wearing cow print and fucking Chris Kirkpatrick had braids. He had white braids, like brandy, like box braids. You know what I mean? Like they were wild and like they wore, you know, neon ski goggles and giant bright orange puffy vests. And they were just, they were more unapologetic about the fact that they were a boy band. Whereas like in my mind, like the Backstreet Boys was so much more serious and they took themselves much more seriously. Um, and that was one of the things that they covered in the documentary that, which I thought was really interesting because I've always had that in my mind that the reason I liked NSYNC is because they were fun and tacky. You know, you know that I'm a tacky queen. Um, but according to industry legend and Lance Bass's YouTube documentary, the Backstreet Boys were offered the opportunity to perform a show for Disney that would air on the Disney channel. And this was like a live concert special and they were exhausted, you know, they were working year-round, non-stop, performing every day. Um, and if they weren't performing, they were doing photo shoots and recording music, etc. And so, at the time, basically anything that the Backstreet Boys turned down, NSYNC would take. And by this time, the Backstreet Boys had found out about NSYNC and they were not happy. They hated them. And this is so funny, this was something that you know, we're going to talk about this in a second here, but like, this was something that became a thing that like, they hated each other and they were rivals and they were open about it and they weren't apologetic about it. They didn't get along. And because Lou Perlman was pitting them against each other. Um, but at this point, anything that the Backstreet Boys didn't want to do in sync would do because they were happy to take the scraps. Nobody knew who they were. Nobody cared about them. And there's actually a, a clip in the documentary of them in their little minivan, Justin's mom has her, like, giant, you know, shoulder video camera, and they're driving up the street, and there's, like, maybe two or three girls outside, 
And um, she's like making fun of them and saying like, oh, look at y'all's little fans. <laughs> at least y'all have two. <laughs> and Justin's like, this is when Justin was still Southern. He's like, nah, mama, we still have fans. Look, there's people out there. We have fans. Um, and it's literally like four little girls in like limited two coats, just like standing there and like kind of caring. But this um, Disney Channel performance actually is the thing that made them famous. Like, before that, like I said, nobody gave a shit about them. And after, it was like a meteor hit the earth. Like, literally, they ran this concert on Disney every day, several times per day. And I actually am not kidding you, and I'm not bullshitting you. I remember this. I remember it because my friend Desiree who was obsessed with NSYNC, recorded this on VHS. And even though they played it all the time, we would watch, like, her, like, scratchy, sometimes just pure static VHS version of this of this concert and, like, perform it in her house. Um, and this was a massive deal. Like, this was the world's introduction to NSYNC. And from that point forward, they were hugely successful. Um... Lou Perlman, as I mentioned earlier, had really pitted them against each other. He would go to the Backstreet Boys and tell them how awful NSYNC was, how mean they were to him, how they weren't good performers, and, you know, how they had better voices. And then he, you know, would say the same thing to, you know, NSYNC about them or whatever. Um, and he was quoted saying that wherever there's Pepsi, there's Coke. So why not own the knockoff and make money off of both of them? And with that, Lou had essentially created the marketing strategy for all male and female pop talent for the next decade. Pen them against each other to the point that they actually don't like each other in the press because it's inevitable that a 19-year-old girl or, or boy who's being bombarded with questions about somebody that could give two fucks about them really but maybe is threatened by them, it's, you know, a spark is is uh, inevitable. Um and it also, like I said, it, it forces fans to obsessively pick a side. And that equals money for them, no matter what. It doesn't matter who you choose. You can choose Britney or Christina. It doesn't matter. We're all being paid. Um, when NSYNC received their first check from Lou, after years of working 18 hours, uh, he paid them $10,000, which didn't even come out to be minimum wage. And... You know, they all freaked out and went into a panic mode. JC contacted his cousin, who was a lawyer. You know, he had explained to them that it basically, it meant that, you know, everything they had done up to that point, expensive dinners, flying on private jets, wardrobe, staying in hotels, Lou was making them pay for that themselves and making them think, these like 19-year-old kids, making them think that they were having all this stuff done for them for free out of the kindness of his heart, you know, with by big Papa or whatever. Um, there were whispers amongst both bands that they were unhappy and wanting to, you know, get out of the contract. They felt lied to their parents were upset. The moms were starting to rally. Um, you know, one of the days that they were out on the road together, Brian Luttrell stormed on the bus and started screaming, about, you know, all the things Lou had promised them and that they were never going to get because it was all lies. Um, Brian was actually the first person to initiate legal action against Lou. 
And when they were, uh, or when they went to court, it was, uh, discovered that Lou had actually contractually made himself the sixth member of the band. So not only was he stealing their money and using it to buy steaks at Lowry's Steakhouse in, in Orlando, but he was also getting a cut of the, sh- the, the piece of shit money that they were already getting. And, I mentioned earlier, they were getting less than minimum wage. Like when it came down to it, they were making less than a server at a restaurant and they were working 18 hour days, you know, every single day, you know, selling 10 million copies of their albums and getting $10,000 for several years of work. $10,000. Could you imagine? Um, when NSYNC came to him and told him that they wanted out of their contracts and that they had gotten lawyers, you know, they had basically found a loophole that he would have to let them go. He sued them for $150 million, uh, to which he obviously lost. This is where you see NSYNC after they've, you know, broken free of his management that they released no strings attached, um, on their own. And, the Battery Boys, who ended up just paying him basically to leave them alone, you know, they're now doing their thing. And, the, you know, the music industry is shifting, you know, one by one, all of his second tier acts were starting to disband. Um, first, Take Five had left and then LFO. Um, he had like reached $15 million in legal fees up to that point and wasn't anywhere near settling. And the really fucked up thing is that Lou Perlman was still like swimming in money, like $15 million in legal fees was like pretty much nothing for Lou Perlman at this point. He also was flying all over the world to Bali, to Ireland, to Dubai, um, to China. And he was stashing money all over the world just to be safe. And a lot of people believe that his money is still just like out there. Like he has money massive sums of money all over the world hidden that nobody knows where any of it is. Um, And in a desperate attempt to, you know, have some sort of revenue coming in, he signed a bunch of new artists. None of them really took off except for yours truly, Mr. Aaron Carter. Um, He also tried to break into Hollywood by developing a script for a movie called Long Shot. Do you guys remember the movie Long Shot? Like, probably not because you didn't see it, but do you remember it? Like, do you remember being in, like, middle school and there being this, um, this movie that had all the pop stars in it, but, like, nobody cared about the movie? Like, nobody saw it? And it had all of the, like, there was no reason for it to not be successful, but it just wasn't. Um... It bombed, and it starred in sync. It had LFO in it. It had O-Town. Britney was in it. She played a flight attendant. Dwayne Johnson was in it. Uh, all of the members of his female group, Innocence. Take Five, C-Note. These are all his, like, third-tier bands. Full Force. <laughs> uh, Dustin Diamond was in it. Art Garfunkel, his cousin, was in it. And, like, I know that you think I'm joking, but I'm not. Like, this is a real movie. It cost $20 million to make, and it barely made $2 million back. Um, and O-Town was another one of his post-lawsuits sort of floundering to make it work business models. So instead of, like, making a band behind the scenes, he decided to do it on TV. 
and force teenage girls to become emotionally attached to each member of the band. You know, he's really good at manipulating his audience, you know, and, and growing to love them in this more personal way, uh, a much more personal way than knowing like their favorite ice cream flavor from Teen Beat magazine. You know what I mean? From like a Teen Beat quiz. You remember in the 90s and the early 2000s when knowing stuff like that was like a badge of honor? Like knowing Jessica Simpson's favorite late night snack was something you would brag about because you memorized it from a Teen Beat magazine. And you know what I mean? Like that was real as fuck. Like I used to go around just spouting off these facts to people all the time. Like shit that my mom definitely did not care about and didn't want to hear from me at 7 a.m. on the way to middle school. You know what I mean? While there's like a chill in the air and the sun is barely up. And I'm like, I'm like, Britney Spears' favorite store is Abercrombie and Fitch, but sometimes she shops at Tommy Hilfiger, depending. <laughs> her favorite color is baby blue. Her favorite ice cream is cookie dough. Her favorite pastime is hanging out with friends and going to movies. You know what I mean? And my mom would just be like silently driving, like tapping her foot on the fucking, <laughs> tapping her foot on the gas. Like, should I run him off the road or no? Uh, <laughs> um, On a darker note, we also have to talk about the fact that Lou Pearlman is a child molester and a predator. Um, When you think about it, you know, Lou's boy bands were basically marketed like gay porn stars. Like, let's really be honest. Like, I'm not even saying that for dramatic effect. I'm not trying to say that to be funny. When you look at how new kids on the block were marketed to the public in comparison to like an NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys, there was a very clear difference. And there was this sort of like overt sexuality um that was very weird like it's not sexuality that you in your mind immediately picture to to target you know teenage girls and it is now because lou kind of helped create that but you know the backstreet boys being you know 18 and 19 years old wearing like silk blouses you know but unbuttoned with rain pouring on them like thrusting their bodies and thrusting their hips and like grabbing their bulges like it was basically gay porn uh he had turned these boys into like little gay porn stars and you know i think it opens up a much larger conversation and i'm really disappointed that that lou perlman documentary didn't really go further into this because i think the much larger crime uh that this man committed uh, you know, a crime much, much bigger than not paying his talent was molesting them, you know, moving them into these rented houses away from their parents and taking advantage of them. And I do think that the entertainment industry has a history of trying to sort of pin terrible things on like one specific person, you know, to make the issue seem more isolated. Like Harvey Weinstein is a bad person. And I can't believe he did all that stuff, but he's gone now. You know what I mean? When Harvey Weinstein is just one of of many, 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 many people doing terrible things. And the same thing with Lou Pearlman, uh, somebody who's like known for exchanging sexual favors for, you know, album releases and roles in movies and clothing lines. I think a lot of industry people know that this is happening and instead of pointing the finger, they sort of take a step back and remove themselves from the conversation because they don't want to be the person who can't work anymore because they were honest about the fact that they basically had to sell their body to release an album. And, you know, I think that this, like, systematic abuse is really complicated because when you're abused as a young, as a kid, and you believe that some part of you 
may have liked it even. You know, it confuses you even more. It clouds your ability to judge situations. And I'm not just talking about Lou. Like I said earlier, I'm just saying, like, in general, the entertainment industry. Um, I think it sort of clouds your ability to judge these situations. Like, I don't know. And I'm only... So I'm going to use this as an example because... In doing research for this episode, I've just been in the strangest places on the internet. A lot of message boards, a lot of, like, um, the readings of blind items that then lead me to photo, to photographic evidence of things being true. That really fucked with me, you know? That really, like, really, really, um, really, really threw me for a loop. Me and my best friend Katie have been, I've been calling her, like, on a weekly basis just being, like, you'll never believe this. Look at this picture, Google this, Google these two people's names together, and you'll never believe all the shit that you see pop up. And I'm going to use this as an example to sort of describe, like, what I mean by systematic abuse, where your judgment becomes clouded and then you get older and you maybe maybe partake in terrible things yourself or are witness to terrible things happening that you don't say anything about because you're enjoying the uh, the the perks of not saying anything. While I was doing research for this episode, as I said, I allowed myself to take some pretty dark turns, and I may or may not have gallivanted through some blind item message boards, and I found myself questioning everything I thought I knew. I was looking at pictures of NSYNC, and just sort of individually looking at pictures of them and, 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 and reading just things about them as individuals, especially people like Joey Fatone and Chris Kirkpatrick. Like, what is Chris Kirkpatrick doing? Like, what... what high school gym is he cleaning right now for his job and i noticed this reoccurring theme in google images and you can look this up yourself of jc chaze hanging out with noted child predator and rapist brian singer like all the time and apparently jc chaze and brian singer are very 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 close friends which i had no idea about there's tons of photos of, of, of JC, you know, on Brian Singer's private plane with a bunch of young, twinky guys that look like they're underage. Um, there's a lot of pictures of JC Chazé and Brian Singer on vacation. Um, and it just makes you wonder why, what somebody like JC Chazé would be doing with Brian Singer on an almost regular basis going to events with him and like his posse they have like a little group that they hang out with all the time uh like Chase Crawford and Colton Haynes like they really have like a little like a group that they're with all the time you know going to like Saint Tropez together on yachts and just being surrounded by teenage boys um and I'm just gonna leave you with that like those are the things that are like this sort of systematic abuse that happens in the industry where people get older and then it clouds their ability to say that's wrong because it happened to them when they were younger. That's all I'm saying. I am not alluding to anything. I'm just letting you know the things that I've seen on the internet that are also uh, of, um, are readily available to you. Just Google the name J.C. Chazé and Brian Singer and you too will be shocked, appalled, surprised, and bamboozled by the amount of photos that pop up of them together. I don't think anything good happens on a private jet with Brian Singer. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, I'm going to step away because I don't want to get whacked. Um, in the documentary, Ash Ashley Parker Angel also talks about uh, one of the members of LFO going on Howard Stern and saying, uh, I had this really incredible, going on Howard Stern and saying that Lou 
came to him and said, I have this really incredible deal for you with this guy in the industry, but you have to let him touch your penis. Basically seeing if any of them would be comfortable being sort of pimped out to some other pedophile because that's what these guys do. They like test these young kids to see what they'll be willing to participate in. And uh, if they seem like willing participants or easy to manipulate, they pass them around. Um, He had cameras all over his house and, you know, told the male members that he could watch videos of the girls from the band Innocence, you know, while they changed clothes. He had bedroom cameras set up. And mind you, this is a house with no parents and a gaggle full of barely legal teenagers, some of them being underage. Aaron Carter was like nine years old while he was living with with Lou. I think he was 10 either way. Um, Lou was also running a Ponzi scheme and allowing people to sell uh, or to um, purchase stocks in his airline company uh, that he had made up. He was forming bands with stolen money from people who, you know, had worked their entire lives for it. I mean, he was just a fucking monster. He obviously ended up going to prison. The FBI caught him while he was playing Catch Me If You Can all over the fucking world. He was running from the police and ending up in Ireland and, you know, in Dubai and all these different places that he went to all the time. Um, and... As mentioned, Aaron Carter did make a a very notable appearance in the boy band documentary. This was before his, like, most recent weight gain. Um, He looked gaunt and strung out and, you know, he was making absolutely no sense. And I almost feel like, you know, Aaron Carter's presence in that documentary wasn't as... It's almost as if he wasn't there as much to tell his side of the story, as much as he was to just sort of... um, be a physical representation of what happens to these, the the long-term effects of what can happen in this industry to somebody who has just been railroaded by it. You know what I mean? Um, Aaron also defended Lou against the pedophilia and molestation accusations. And a part of me feels like Aaron has been so used and abused and passed around and mentally just fucking attacked his whole life that at this point i don't believe he has a very clear understanding of who did what to him in his life and who he can trust and who he can't you know what i mean aaron carter's family is horrendously terrible his parents basically sold him to this guy um there was actually an article written <clears throat> by Vanity Fair about Lou Pearlman that came out in 2007 that really was like the first sort of domino in this whole thing. Like w- years and years before this documentary came out last year, um, the article is called Mad About Boys. And it was basically like the very first like definitive attack publicly on Lou Pearlman. There's a bunch of accounts from different people who he had hired, different people who worked for him, um, different guys from these boy bands. Um, so I'm going to read a couple quotes from it. Um, 
Some members, especially the teenagers, shrugged and giggled when he showed them pornographic movies or jumped naked into their beds in the morning to wrestle and play. Others, it appears, didn't get off so easily. These were the young singers seen emerging from his bedroom late at night, buttoning their pants, sheepish looks on their faces. Some deny anything improper ever happened, but the parents of at least one, a member of the Backstreet Boys, complained. And for any number of young men who sought to join the world's greatest boy bands, Big Papa's attention was an open secret. The price some had to pay for fame. Uh, This guy, Steve Mooney, who was... Um, an aspiring singer at the time, he had he was auditioning to be a part of O-Town, and I think he was featured on the show. He said, some guys joked about it. I remember one singer asking me, have you let Lou blow you yet? Uh, says Steve Mooney, an, open, an, an aspiring singer who served as Perlman's assistant and lived in the home for two years. I would absolutely say that the guy was a sexual predator. All the talent knew that Lou was ga- knew what Lou's game was, and if they say no, then they're just lying to you. Steve Mooney believed he saw firsthand the price many young men were paying. Perlman's bedroom lay behind a pair of double doors, and when they were closed, Mooney knew not to intrude. More than once, he says, he encountered young male singers slipping out of those doors late at night. There was one guy in every band, a sacrifice. <clears throat> one guy in every band who takes it for the team, for Lou. Uh, echoing a sentiment I heard from several people. That's just the way it was, and everybody knew it. Uh, this Moody kid ended up having like this big argument with Lou where uh, basically Lou called him in the middle of the night because he would do and say anything to get these boys to come over, right? So like he would call and say, hey, my back hurts. I can't lift this box. Can you come over at like one in the morning? So basically Lou had called him really late at night and said, I need you to come over and take out the trash. Mind you, this kid is in limbo and being told that, you know, if he proves himself, he'll get a spot in O-Town and that everybody starts off as an assistant. So you have to basically do everything I say. And that's how J.C. Chazay started. So if you want a career, then that's how you have to, you know, that's how you have to do it. So when he arrived at Lou's house, he was in a terry cloth, terry cloth robe, naked, <clears throat> with his legs spread open in his office. And it was at this point that he had decided he was going to take action against Lou because he knew that he was never going to like actually be a part of the group. And um, we'll get to this in a minute. I have another quote from one of the guys from LFO. But like Lou never really intended for any of his bands to become so successful. He really just wanted like hot young guys around him and they just so happened to take off so it didn't matter to him that this kid who thinks he's going to be you know a superstar was never going to be famous he was just around as like a plaything for lou and so this kid decided like i'm going to take action against him he's never going to put me in the band i basically make no money and i still live at home like fuck him so this guy goes into his office and steals a bunch of incriminating photos uh, one of him and uh, and a, another one of his assistants dressed up as a Chippendales dancer. Uh, there was one of him on a ski trip alone with one of the members of the Backstreet Boys that looked really romantic. And one uh, of a very young, very famous, naked teenage boy in his sauna, who I believe was most likely Aaron Carter. So he showed the photos to one of Lou's aides, and the aide told him to basically burn the photos, never speak of them again, and the aide then went and told Lou, um, and the kid never worked in the entertainment industry ever again. He now sells real estate. 
Rich Cronin from LFO was also quoted in the magazine, and he said, honestly, I don't think Lou ever thought we would become uh, become stars. Uh, said Rich Cronin, lead singer of Perlman boy band Light Funky Ones, which, by the way, I had no idea that LFO stood for the Light Funky Ones. Uh, I, I mean, maybe I'm the last to know, but... I feel aged a year after hearing that. Like, I'm gutted. The light, funky ones. Um, He said, I think that he wanted cute guys around him, and that was his excuse. And when lightning crazily struck and the empire was created, it was all dumb luck. I think his motives for getting into the music industry were very different. The article then goes on to point out that Nick Carter was one of the first people to confirm um, some inappropriate behavior happening with Lou. Uh, it says one incident centered on the youngest of the Backstreet Boys, Nick Carter, who in 1997 turned 17. My son did say something about the fact that Nick had been uncomfortable staying at Lou Perlman's house, says Denise McLean. Uh, for a while, Nick loved going over to Lou's house, and all of a sudden it appeared that there was a flip at some point. Then we heard from the Carter camp that there was some kind of inappropriate behavior. It was all very odd. I can just say, uh, I can just say that there were very odd events that took place. Neither Nick nor uh, neither Nick Carter nor his divorced parents, Robert and Jane Carter, will address what, if anything, happened. But at least uh, two other mothers of Perlman's band members assert uh, assert Jane termed Perlman a sexual predator. Uh, Phoenix Stone says he discussed the matter with both Nick and his mother. Uh, with Nick, I've got to tell you. Uh, this was not something that Nick was conf- comfortable talking about, says Stone. What happened? Well, I just think that he finally, you know, Lou was definitely inappropriate with him, and he just felt that he didn't want to, he didn't want anything to do with it anymore. There was a big blow up at the point, um, at that point, and from what Jane says, yes, there was a big blow up, and they confronted Lou. Uh, Jane Carter, Nick and Aaron's mom, said. Uh, certainly things happened, she tells me, and it almost destroyed our family. I tried to warn everyone. I tried to warn all of the mothers. Uh, she was told in this article um, that they would basically be detailing allegations against Lou, and this was the first time this was ever really happening. Um, and she said, if you're going to do that and expose that, I give you a big flag. I tried to expose him for what he was years ago. I hope you expose him because the financial scandal is uh, the least of his injustices. When I ask why she wouldn't discuss it further, she says um, she doesn't want to jeopardize her relationship with Nick. She says, I can't say anything any I can't say anything more. She says these children are fearful and they want to go on with their careers. And what I will leave you with, because I just want to jump back to Aaron Carter for a second. I was thinking about how, you know, hard it must have been, specifically for Aaron, because he met Lou. Or, you know, he at least became business acquaintances with Lou during an extremely, like, sort of desperate time in Lou's life. In many ways, you know, Aaron was sort of Lou Perlman's life vest, and he was keeping him afloat. He was the only successful business venture in his life during, you know, this specific time. You know, his two most successful acts sued him and left him uh, uh, his second and third tier acts were all leaving and disbanding and you know he took a stab at hollywood that didn't work out and cost him a bunch of money and now he is this 10 year old boy that is basically the only thing that still ties him to the industry in a positive way um the amount of pressure on aaron i can't even imagine and I don't know. We also have to talk about the fact that his parents still allowed him to sign a contract with Lou Pearlman, considering what they knew. 
Like, let's really break that down for a second. Uh, you know, Nick Carter is the first person to really make waves when it comes to Lou Perlman being a fucking pedophile. Jane Carter claims to have been some sort of whistleblower, so she says, who got, you know, punished for trying to do the right thing. Yet she allows her 10-year-old son to not only sign a contract with Lou Perlman, but to move into his house. Aaron Carter was living in Lou Perlman's house with a pedophile. Now, from what I've read, Lou was so sort of out in the open about his love of underage boys that the people who worked for him, I'm talking like staff members, gardeners, um, you know, people who were paid to just do sort of mundane things around the house, even they would do everything they could. And they had this sort of like secret code amongst all amongst each other that they had to protect these kids. And if that meant trying to make sure that, you know, they didn't come over late at night or, you know, trying to sabotage whatever plans Lou had for them at two in the morning to come help him search for files in his bedroom, they would do that. But they also knew that this extremely powerful man was going to do whatever the fuck he wanted to do. And when those doors closed, there was nothing that could be done. So they would warn people, you know, get your kid away from him before it's too late. You know, once they get to his bedroom, all bets are off. Like everybody knows you don't disturb him once those doors are locked. Um, and this woman let him basically raise her 10 year old. And, you know, if I had to guess, like, if I really had to put money on it, I would guess that Aaron Carter has probably faced some of the worst sort of, like, modern-day entertainment abuse. I'm talking, like, Shirley Temple-level abuse. And has been put in some absolutely horrendous situations, especially because when he started out, he was so young he started his record deal at like nine years old. Uh, he also became famous during a time before the internet, if you think about it. So, you know, and this was also before people really caring about what happened with these kids. Like way before. I mean, really, we only recently have really started to care about what's going on with Nickelodeon and Disney. And there was that kid a couple days ago that had just come out um, that he, that his, uh, his manager had been passing him around to different people in the industry and raping him since he was like 13 or something. Um, you know, they, this is something that's only just starting. And I don't know. I think it's interesting. Like when me too happened and when Harvey Weinstein got arrested, you saw this massive, massive outcry of, of A-list celebrities, you know, telling their Me Too story and coming forward about what's happened to them. And I just think that it's very ironic that all of these kids have come out talking about being molested. There was another girl that just recently uh, came forward uh, who said that she, when she was working for Disney, um, there was like a blind item written about her and it ended up being somebody that I didn't know. Um, but she revealed her identity and she... Uh, basically just came forward and said that she was being raped and abused and molested by um, her team through Disney after she was on X Factor. 
And nobody's really making a big deal about it. Like you hear these stories and they're a big deal for a day and then they get swept under the rug and nobody's really like batting an eye. And I just think there's a lot of people with a lot of things to hide that don't want to come forward or show any sort of support or whatever because they have a lot of skeletons in their closet. You know what I mean? Um, I just, I feel so bad for Aaron Carter. Literally, I got an alert while I was recording this and I deposit because Aaron Carter now has a restraining order pending against him from his brother because he just said publicly that he wanted to kill his wife or something. It's just a fucking mess. It's a mess. And this kid has been pimped out and passed around all over fucking Hollywood since he was a a nine-year-old he's so deranged i don't know if you guys know that aaron carter is like dating trisha paytas right now and if you watch trisha's lives on instagram they are this is somebody who is just crying out for attention and just desperate for people to hear him and know what he's gone through he can't even get through a 10 or 15 minute conversation with trisha without bringing up his past it's just sad. It's just really fucking sad. And I feel terrible for him. I feel terrible for all these guys. Like, this is just such a crazy thing. And it's just so insane that our childhoods and, like, the, th- the thing that sort of helped shape who I am is this monster, Lou Pearlman. He gave me Britney. I, I-, I have him to thank. You know what I mean? He gave us the teen pop ooh ah, ah sensation, but he also was an, a literal monster. Um, and yeah, so next week we're going to be talking about Britney. I want to talk about Britney and her dad. Uh, you know, Britney is intertwined into this too. Britney was signed to Lou Pearlman for, uh, a, a year or so before she was, um, before she switched management and she actually was supposed to be a member of the band in a sense. So that would have been Brittany, you know, sunbathing and having videos of her easily could have been her, you know, Lou Perlman sh- literally playing videos on a, a, a mega screen in his theater room of these girls topless for like to watch, you know, it's just, yeah, so next week we're going to transition and talk about Britney. This is, like I said, this is a very experimental thing that I'm doing. I hope that you like it. Um, eventually we will end up going into the nitty-gritty and talking about Britney and Justin as a couple. I just wanted to give some backstory because I think that the Lou Pearlman of it all is very interesting given what is going on right now in the news. But that was episode 110 of The Smush Room. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too much. This isn't one that I would maybe play on like a loudspeaker. You know what I mean? Really dig this one into your ears because it's uh it's it's dark. But I love you and I will see you next week. And uh alright, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this mushroom, an emotionally broken psycho's Patreon exclusive. Please make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps your boy. Also, make sure to head over to patreon.com slash evpsychos for more information on this show and other Patreon-exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McEady. That's T-R-O-Y-M-C-E-A-D-Y. You can also follow this podcast at EBP underscore Smushroom. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.